Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am the titular Ethan. I am the titular Michael. That's my nickname for you, anyway. Uh, (laughs) We are, uh, and I'm going to do this joke now and two more times, in technically each a room that Scotch is in. Um... As I, as I mentioned last episode, we are each sort of reclined in a, a chair with the scotch on one hand, and like it's sort of a, a thing of clockwork and, and pulleys and levers and dials. Um, we each have like one of those things like a, a eye doctor has where there's just like a series of cascading lenses um, that connect to mirrors, which connect to signal fires, so like we can see each other and have the illusion that we're in the same room, even though, as we established last episode, we are in rooms that are technically, physically, like, 4,000 miles apart from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's called a um, foropter. Yeah, looking it up. That's, that sounds right and not made up. Could be. Um, <laughs> good. So this is, of course, part two of our discussion of The Light Between Oceans by M.L. Stedman. Um, mm-hmm. I introduced that out of order, didn't I? That's uh, okay. You know, we, we have rules, but they're more like guidelines. <laughs> um, and if uh. you don't get that reference to a movie from 17 years ago, I don't know if you should be listening to this podcast. <laughs> Um, all right. After that firm, firm stance I took, um, very firm, very, I would like to introduce you to our scotch. Uh, unfortunately, because of everything, uh, we were not able to coordinate scotches quite, but we did both get a Highland malt finished in a, like, uh, fortified wine cask, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, something very close to that. Uh, Michael, what are you drinking? I am drinking the Glenlivet 14 years of age single malt scotch whiskey. And it is... What was it finished in? I thought you said it was finished in... Uh, finished in cognac casks. Cognac casks. Okay. And I am drinking the Glenmorangie 12 year old uh, single malt scotch whiskey the La Santa, which is finished in sherry casks. Um... So we both have, you know, scotches finished in casks, dedicated originally to a red grape drink, which makes it sound way more child-friendly than it is. Um, and yeah, so, you know, we, we did our best. Stop looking at us like that. <laughs> um, on that very defensive note, I would like to ask my dear wife, Karen, to please enter the room and read the rules and i failed to note this last time but like she is going to read the rules exactly the same as she always does because like she's very much a creature of habit and even though she reads the rules live each time she can't read them not the way like we threw her off so bad by adding those two rules at the beginning of this season Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. we can't do do more to her after that it just wouldn't be right it would be anyway karen hi yes Hi, Karen. Please read the rules. Rule 1. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule 2. 
No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thank you, Karen. Uh, have you poured the scotch yet, Michael? Allow me to. I shall. Tis poured. Very good. As is mine. Uh, so, that said, salute. Lechayim. Gratsky. Uh, so, we are so. discussing, as I did spoil already, as we spoiled the entirety of in the last episode, uh, <laughs> The Light Between Oceans by M. L. Stedman. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, when we left off, and over the course of an hour's worth of uh, uh, podcast time, which is different from other time, um, mm-hmm. yeah. we uh, did raise two of the three objections that I said at the beginning of the last episode that I wanted to sort of get through quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to begin with my third objection simply because as we sort of teased at the end of last episode, we do have other stuff we want to get to other than me poo-pooing this book that is, like, popular (laughs) enough to have been, according to the cover of my edition, a spectacular New York Times bestseller. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh, the third, and I've been trying to find, and I should have, like marked it at all or written it down or whatever but i've been trying to find um the er example to me of uh my third objection which is just the fact and once again as i did mention with my other two objections um that uh this is a very sort of a subjective personal objection but the third reason i 
did not like this book is that I don't feel like it was written as a book. I feel like it was written as a book that was meant to be made a movie. Mm. Um, Okay. As in, over the course of reading it, what I got the impression of, and again, this is me sort of attributing wild and complex motives that I have no proof for to an author who quite possibly might not deserve it. But that said, the impression it made on me is that this book was not written necessarily to be a novel that stood on its own. It was written to be a novel that sold well enough to get turned into a movie. Um, Okay. And I have several reasons for thinking this. Um, The one is that uh, there was a book that came out several years ago. Um, I don't know exactly when it came out, but it came out in like the last 10 years. There was this book called Save the Cat. Um, are you familiar with this Save book, Michael? Save the Cat? Yes. Mm-mm. It, the original one was like a screenplay, like how to write a screenplay kind of thing. Like the kind of book that Sid Field has been writing and revising for the last, you know, 40 years. Um, uh, it, was, it was sort of yet another entry in the hero's journey, like here's how to write a screenplay based on Joseph Campbell kind of uh, um, Got it. how-to manual, right? Um, mm-hmm. But Say the Cat, like, broke down sort of best-selling screen... So the, the like, traditional one, um, Sid Field is the probably most famous name in this business, and his book was called... Uh, I thought that I would google it and find it real quick but i'm failing to do that um i read i think it was okay if my googling is correct i think it's just called the screenwriter's workbook um but sidfield is famous in sort of uh um both his his nonfiction books and his uh he does like you know conferences and so forth um he is famous for breaking down a screenplay into three acts and then within the acts certain beats that you sort of have to hit within those acts right um Mm -hmm. and it's uh you know somewhat along the lines of like here's how any story works but it's more more specific than that um you you know i i could like run through the whole schema but if you've ever studied like any how to write a story uh material based on like aristotle's incline like it's it's that right so you have Mm -hmm. act one where you have a setup um sort of a a, this is the old world um you know you have a call to adventure you have uh in Jungian archetypes you have like the refusal of the call where uh luke skywalker tries to just stay on tatooine because he doesn't actually you know Mm. want to fulfill his dreams and then you have like a spur to action where luke's parents get or his parent figures get murdered and force him out of the old world and then you have this rising action and over the course of act two you have a a confrontation um in act three that is sort of the climax you have the falling action right this is like super basic stuff for um uh anyone who's studied sort of how to 
write a story or how to write fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Sidfield does it pretty granularly where within Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3, he has like subsections that uh, uh, he claims that most or all successful screenplays hit um, to sort of make those like main um, plot points really sort of sing. Um, and Save the Cat sort of took the Sid Field schema and broke it down even on an even more granular level. So this was like a beat by beat, like um, it's been quite a while since I have read the book and I didn't so much read it as skim it, but um, it really seemed like it had things every like three to five minutes that you were supposed to hit in your screenplay. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, and so um this novel was published when uh, 2012, um, yeah. at least according to my edition, mm-hmm. um, which would have been like right in the first like timing is again I don't know exactly you know how long Stedman took to write and uh, find a publisher for this novel, but potentially that puts it right in the exact right timeline for save the cat to be like the major how to write fiction influence on this book right um sure and it did come out like as like a lot of these best-selling how to how to do stuff books it came out with a bunch of sub editions including Mm. uh one about how to write fiction now i don't know you know again i i have no idea if stedman read this book or if this is just uh Newton and Leibniz inventing calculus at the same time, right? But um, <laughs> sure. either, like, whether intentionally or not, this book hits every beat of a Save the Cat style screenplay. Um, hmm. And uh, Save the Cat specifically, and Michael, I want to see, like, when you can predict where I'm going here, but. Um, the, the term Save the Cat, as I understand and remember, refers to a technique where you introduce a, a hero, you know, a main character who might be somewhat shaded, right? Like, they're, they're not mm-hmm. evil, but they're not purely good. Like, they might be rough around the edges. Um, sure. The idea that that's, like, the most appealing type of, of character to the largest swath of audience so in order to like garner the audience's sympathy immediately um you create a situation as early in act one as possible where this character does something valiant or or good or sympathetic such as save the cat or the woman on the boat yes such as (laughs) see a scene of what we would now call sexual harassment what an the time sure. might have just been dismissed by you know some people like tom as boys being boys or not that big a deal or whatever um mm-hmm. and tom makes the choice to intervene in this difficult like potentially difficult awkward dangerous situation and yes save the cat um mm-hmm. so as soon as like that scene happened that was what i felt like was my tip off and i did start just watching for 
other beats from uh, Sid Field or from Save the Cat. And um, I, I fully admit it's been since I sort of had my heavy, like, uh, read books on how to write screenplays years, it's been five or six years. Um, but as best I could recall, like, this book uh, fits a schema of the plot, the, like, the plots of the, like, biggest, like, blockbuster screenplays that have come out, especially in the last ten years. But if you analyze those plots, they're just addendums to plots that have been happening for at least at least since star wars since you know george lucas took the hero mm -hmm. of a thousand faces and turned it into <clears throat> a screenplay um right and uh so that's that's one clue that i had the other clue actually lies sort of in the prose itself um okay uh so i don't there was a scene and I don't know if it's the one that I've found here, but I think it might be. There was a scene that particularly struck me as cinematic. And um, in my edition, which I think is the same as your edition, Michael, it's the, the mm -hmm. paperback one that's like taller than your standard paperback. Um, this is page 260, uh, which is um, chapter 25 begins halfway down a page, and this is the very next page. Mm -hmm. um, and this is when... Uh, Tom and Isabel are giving up Lucy to her, like, actual biological mother, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Tom turned back towards Lucy, now distracted by the play of the birds wiggling their long black tails. He was about to reach out a hand to her, but imagined her anguish, best if he slipped away. She caught sight of his movement and stretched out her arms. Dada, wait, pick me up. Uh... Mm -hmm. Skipping a bit now, if you please, urged Sprague, taking Tom's elbow. As Tom walked away, every step more awful, Lucy pursued him, arms still outstretched. Dada, wait for Lulu, she begged, wounded and confused. When she tipped and fell face down on the gravel, letting out a scream, Tom could not go on and spun around, breaking free of the policeman's grip. Lucy, he skipped, scooped her up and kissed her scratched chin. Says her name a bunch of times. You're all right, little one. You'll be all right. Vernon Nucky looked at the ground and cleared his throat. Um, I could go on, but like, I think I've read enough to make my point, which is that every mm. single one of those sentences uh, could be directing a film camera. Um, like, there's mm -hmm. there's nothing in that half page that I just read that you could directly film. Um, sure. And uh it's and the only things that that are arguably sort of not that are just the words where ml Stedman straight up tells you how to feel um you know <laughs> tom imagined her anguish uh dada picked mm -hmm. me up she urged her tone betraying her sense that something was wrong um mm -hmm. tom walked away every step more awful uh the only two things that are going on in that passage are emotional words telling you how to feel and uh camera directions um sure and you know again like it's no crime to write a book that you hope gets made into a movie like that has been done at least since movies proved to be you know lucrative especially since they proved to be sometimes more lucrative than books 
Um, yeah. But again, like it goes in with sort of the the emotional manipulation and the the like scenario emo- uh, scenario manipulation that were my sort of first two objections um, in making me feel like this book is trying to do stuff to me that it's not sort of advertising that it's that it's you know Mm. sneakily trying to uh tell me a how to feel b sort of just roil up my emotions with no sort of resolution and c um that it's trying to sell me on a movie that you know if i'm reading this book when it first comes out hasn't been made yet (laughs) sure so that and i'd love to hear your feedback on that or indeed anything else um but that is like my sort of second uh condemnatory or my third rather condemnatory take on this Mm. book and that is all the mud that i have to sort of hurl at this book sure um excuse me yeah i i see what you mean there and um I, I think I definitely noticed some of that as well, that a lot of this could be simply written into a screenplay as directions. And yes. um, I, like you said, I don't think that's a crime. Um, in fact, it, the, the, the positive that I'll say on that is I think um, for a popular novel, a lot of people are going to, want to be able to see it as a movie and that's more or less what it's accomplishing here um so that's the the question is is that being um um what do i want to say uh nope the word's gone um (laughs) is that being like (laughs) hypocritical or something like that that uh condescending condescending okay um and and I don't think it necessarily is. Um, some of the some of the situations where in, in you know some of those other sentences where it's telling you how to feel more or less. Right. Um, I I have a stronger objection to that. Um, right. Than to the more cinematic descriptions. And um, I admit I sort of confusingly combined two, uh, I guess different objections or two different. Uh, criticisms um because the 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 sort of emotion words telling you how to feel that's very much a craft thing that's like within the realm of a novel but plenty of novelists do but i hold is bad yeah um then the but the like cinematic sort of depictions of things you know that could be more attributed to style maybe ml steadman just has a cinematic style um, although it is maybe a little more condemning that you notice the structure of save the cat, right. uh, sort of superimposed on it. Um, but that itself, I think doesn't necessarily totally outright remove the book's standing, I think. Um, right. and you know, to be fair, like there's a lot of overlap between screenplay structures and especially commercial fiction structures. Um, yeah to the point that the, the... what my my uh, limited experience taking 
graduate level fiction classes like we were told as homework or not homework but like further reading kind of advice um to read sid field or to read some very successful like how to write screenplay guides as uh yeah supplement to writing fiction so there is inherently right. sort of a lot of overlap there right the the difference being that watching a movie is going to take a lot less time than reading a book <laughs> right um, and I don't know. I think I think you wind up with some something a little bit different in a novel, even just based on its length, than a movie. Um, right, and that's that's something I brought up and, last episode, isn't it? Right, like um, yeah, the idea that maybe I mind less some of the things that go on in different genres in a movie or in a play because it takes less of my time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um I don't know. That's Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh I guess like to to sort of be clear, I guess, um the direction of my objection and my sort of personal tastes comes from uh a passage in the novel Immortality by Milan Kundera, um, who's most famous mm. for writing The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which itself got in, turned into a movie that, as I understand, Kundera despised. Um, oh, sure. And Kundera's next book after Unbearable Lightness, I believe, was Immortality that I believe came out after the movie. I could have any of that wrong, and I refuse to do research, so don't quote me. But... Um, <laughs> He, he has a passage in Immortality where basically he holds that for a novel to be anything, for a novel to be meaningful um, in a world where movies exist and sort of suck up so much of the oxygen, uh, it must do inherently what a movie cannot. Um, sort of the, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not definitely not quoting, but the, the corollary being that if you're going to do something in a novel that a movie can do, you might as well write a movie. Um, <laughs> sure. And this is, you know, a very demanding thing and, and in some sense is a very sort of narrow-minded thing that I do tend to demand of the novels that I like and especially of the ones that I love um, is that they do something that... Uh, a movie cannot do and this sort of has to do with sort of the time requirements right because if a movie mm-hmm. if a, a novel's going to just do something a movie can do a movie's going to do it a lot more efficiently and i have to spend a lot less time both consuming and thinking about it um sure so i guess i tend to feel like if i'm going to get something out of a book that i could have just gotten out of a movie i'm mad at the book for wasting my time <laughs> Yeah, I get you. Yeah, I follow. Um, I, 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 I understand what you mean, and I think I disagree with the conclusion that this novel winds up being a waste of time because the movie can accomplish the same thing. I'm, I'm not, not necessarily totally sure why, but I definitely feel. Yeah. 
uh, I, I'm not necessarily saying that the whole novel is a waste of time because of that. Um, at least in this specific sure. case, where uh, I do feel like there there are things in the novel that um, go beyond sort of that objection, um, because the okay. novelist is a is you know quite a smart and and skillful person. Um, or skillful author. Right. Uh, right. And I think some but, of what comes out in the novel that... You, go ahead. I was just going to say, to the extent that large passages in this novel could have been just film scenes, I resent the mm -hmm. what I consider the waste <laughs> of my time. Yeah. Okay. I'll follow. Which may just be me yeah. sort of anatomizing the exact thing you said you disagree with rather than mitigating it, but... Um, here we are. That's okay. That's all right. No, that's right. Um, well, I think some of what um, the novel accomplishes that, like, the movie didn't or couldn't, right? Um, are textual things. Um, See, this is where... what I would love to hear. Like, what what textual things do you think the novel did that a movie could not do? Well, this is some of what I wanted to to discuss. Is as some of the the density, some of the research that I think Stedman did, especially in terms of mythology, as I teased in the at the end of our last episode. Yes. Um, I think I misheard being... you and said a different word at the end of the last episode. But Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that one's been sent okay. out on the podcast tapes now, so there's no changing it. But go no, on. It's, it's impossible. Anyway. All right. So um, the, uh, the setting for the novel is Australia. But specifically, right. where Tom and Isabel wind up. What's that place called? The lighthouse? Where the lighthouse is? Where's that? What's that called? Uh, I missed it, partly because you cut out for a second, but you're back now. Um, oh, okay. Janice, oh, Janice, Janice Rock. Rock. Oh my gosh, why didn't I? I'm honestly shocked we haven't gotten here sooner. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is this. I think is like she buries the lead a little bit by just naming it Janice Rock because it's central to the entire book. Yeah, um, and it is. And I think I did note this at some point, though I obviously lost track of it. It is a very clever reference. It, it's it's extremely clever, and it is something that, from my recollection of the movie, is not exactly captured in the movie. Like I think they sure. call it Janice Rock, but you don't really get anything more out of it in the movie than that. Um, I I remember Sarah making references to various things that she picked up on from the book and saying, "Oh, that this happened this way, blah blah blah, whatever." Sure. Um, she didn't say blah blah blah. She's more eloquent than that. Um, but uh, <laughs> noticing things about the the Janice connection that doesn't come through in the movie, and sure. having to explain some of that to me um, um, when, I, you, when we watch the movie. But maybe you were about to do this anyway. Yeah. But do you want to explain the Janice connection to any of our gentle listeners who have not gotten yes. there? Yes. So Janice is a Roman god. He is the god of thresholds um and of change to an extent of of turning points rites of passage it's why we have the month january it's named after him as right. the first month because um, it looks backwards janice to the old is a year. god with 
two faces. He has two faces, look, one looking backward, one looking forward. Yes. Um, and so January 1st, you look back at the old year and forward at the new year um, yes. is more or less the idea. So this idea of, of doubling everything is is key in here and being between things because it's the light between oceans between is the biggest word in the title there um literally <laughs> uh, i think it's what seven letters and everything else is oceans oh, is six okay so, so i see what you're saying because anyway. on the on my cover like typographically it's actually the smallest typographically the it's the, small yeah but yes no, right. I understand <laughs> what you're saying. like longest we'll say that yes um but okay so Janus is that Roman god um, yes. who has the two faces looking backward and forward. And you can see some of that um, early on. It's very um, interesting to try to analyze Tom and Isabel as to which one looks backward, which one looks forward. And Tom has very much closed the eyes on the backward face right? Uh, as he's looking forward now right. to his life going onward. And that um, is sort of the major and, motif uh, in their relationship, yep. right? Yep, that's that's more or less the the dynamic between those two. But then I think it like it starts to get muddied and blurred, if not totally reversed by the end. Yeah. Um, and that's that's some of the 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 big conflict that that happens throughout the the book. Um, and that's that's just one aspect of it. I want to suggest that M. L. Stedman did a very good job. Because this book takes place in the 20s, mm-hmm. um, and so the the Christian church is a very big figure for these Australians. Right. Um, and I want to make the case that M.L. Stedman did an excellent job of whenever there is reference to God, mm-hmm. you could replace God with Janus, oh. and it's there's there's a lot to it. Um, oh, that's I mean that's just, actually just, really interesting. Yes, this this is something that occurred to me when um, uh, Lucy was baptized for what we find out is the second time. Right. Which they're another doubling. Yeah, that's... Um, I'm trying yeah. to find the actual page, but the, the, the pastor asks if the child has already been baptized, um, and they say no, because they can't say yes, um, and then they're... they're uh, there, there are other references there, too, of the, the pastor saying something about God this that and the other thing yeah um isabel is always uh trying to find out what's god's will in this and she interprets um lucy's landing on the island as god's will for her to receive a child because they've had miscarriages and stillbirths up to this point uh and so well that's this is god's will now in giving them a child you know uh, the lord giveth and the lord taketh away okay i mean that sort of double aspect suggests janice um I think that's that's something that ML Stedman is is doing in here. Um, sure. I, I don't think it's it, she's terribly interested in presenting a a Christian milieu, but by using this Roman God as a a, um, a vehicle for uh, this examination into human nature even just on the very first page we haven't gotten there yet but uh we 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 did the first episode by starting on the last page now we're going to get in the second episode looking at the first page yeah um the isabel it starts with isabel praying um on on the cliff right she's praying the lord's prayer 
she only pray we only read her praying one part of the lord's prayer i'm yeah. trying to remember exactly how the movie did this i i can't see the movie actually just cutting out just this one portion and putting that in it would feel awkward in a movie right um you would have to have either the whole prayer really muted or mostly muted and then you hear it explicitly for this petition or what if you were Um, really careful about it you could do it where you could sort of really carefully yeah you you wouldn't be able to full i mean this is this is a thing you can do in a novel more fully than you could do in a movie because you wouldn't be able to fully mute you're right mute the entirety of the prayer except this you could have it emphasized where you could have Mm -hmm. winds and rain or or a a slowly swooping in camera and then really emphasize this phrase but you're right like you couldn't mute it entirely right so yeah what what she prays what we read her praying here is as and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil which those two petitions back to back always presents this in between sure sort of aspect yeah um and that so lead us not into temptation that's the one path deliver us from evil that's the other path there are those those right. two and so when lucy the day of the miracle as it's described here uh winds up on on the island um that's this nexus point right and the whole book like i said is is this dense self-contained thing right in that point really um of being in between all of this sure um and when isabel is trying to figure out what uh what to do about this um you know and she interprets it one way tom kind of is interpreting it a different way but has to go along with isabel on this. right um it's yeah so that's 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 that that theme that's that's emphasized there um and brought out by just the name of of janice um and there's one other character who's who has a Roman name as well. What's Septimus? Septimus. Oh is yes. Hannah's father. Yes. Um, which is a very Roman way of naming. Um, is he even the seventh son? Do we even get his backstory? I don't think we get I enough think... of it to know that. I, I I can't remember. I might be mixing with something else, but yeah, seven, Septimus means seventh. Right. As though he's the the seventh son here, but so like course, that that idea of the Roman naming is on Stedman's mind. Naming his um um yeah. So the the Roman naming is on is on Stedman's mind. Is is all yeah. I wanted to pretty much say about that bit. Um, um not to I'm, like I'm, not to like put in put my foot in the door of the house that is named with michael um (laughs) but seven is the biblical number of judgment yes Uh uh-huh uh-huh yeah no you're 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 putting your foot in a door that i was already opening so um (laughs) well at least i didn't get my toe stubbed (laughs) no (laughs) i maybe hit hit you in the nose a little bit with it um and what else is new but yes yeah, so it, it well it's the name of judgment and completion and yes. the Sabbath rest conclusion yeah. um coming through all of there. So and and Septimus is kind of a key player in that yeah. conclusion. Yeah. Um absolutely. Also I want to talk about 
that's that's more or less where I want to stop talking about Septimus and talk about some of the other key characters. Well, um, before you do that, I just want to throw yeah. a couple things in as far as the Janus uh, thing goes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, number one is just that, like, I would not... I came into this podcast knowing that you might seduce me into thinking better of this book than I did at the beginning. Um, uh-huh. I did not expect there to be anything that would make me want to reread this book completely, but you saying <laughs> the Janus thing almost does make me want to do that. Um, so I hate I you for that. I continue to surprise you. You're yeah. welcome. Uh, secondly, I was looking through... I now forget what, what passage you were um, referencing, but I was, I was looking through to find it and gave up... Um, to be fair, <laughs> in the interest of actually listening to you uh, rather than oh, my well, own head, which is the first time in the history of the podcast that has been done. Um, <laughs> but on page 126, I did find uh, Isabel writing to her mom and dad. Um, Janice Rock, June 1926. Mm-hmm. Dear mom and dad, well, God has sent us an angel to keep us company. Baby Lucy has captured mm-hmm. our hearts. Um so like that you know again if you replace god with janice like it works as foreshadowing nope. if nothing else right like baby uh-huh. lucy comes to be both both an angel and i mean you hesitate to uh, call a, an adorable baby girl a demon but like she does <laughs> no but i don't <laughs> what I, I know what you mean though yeah yeah yep. she does she does become like a a force for heartache if not explicit evil in their life so she she becomes this simultaneously positive and negative sort of force well and and here's here's the thing like in in any writing when someone says it's god's will like my react my knee-jerk reaction is is it instead (laughs) (laughs) in 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 this book my reaction is which god um like are you talking about janice because how do you know? <laughs> right. Um, and I think that, and you know... You, and maybe you, it is and isn't at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think so. you make a very good point about um, Simon not necessarily being interested in the Christian God per se. Yeah. Um, which is does fit into this, like, this sort of problem, like problem story genre that we've somewhat located this book within Mm -hmm. um because you know it's uh it's a way of sort of focusing the problem again it's not like stedman is not making a statement for or against the christian god the christian god here is just sort of a spur to this deeper uh sort of level of the text where yeah you know janice this this older different set of um, touchstones is operating sort of in disguise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like there, there, there is certainly a, um, a, a certain amount of, of Christian themes here there, because there is another Roman name in here. Um, and that's Lucy meaning light. Sure. Um, but her other name is grace, which, is a christian concept here sure yeah. um and that 
you you have that combination of you know, even this this child has two names again with that Janice connection, um, and she winds up taking both at the end. She's she goes by Lucy Grace, right? Um, in in the rest of her life, and so that that idea of of light and grace and the 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 point I think that's that's coming through as far as there is a, a point at mm. that is that. Lucy and Grace are not mutually exclusive. Mm. She's not light or Grace. She's both. Right. And um, that's that's one of the nuances that comes through here. Um, other names that connect with all of this as well. Isabel um, is the, the Spanish form of the name Elizabeth, who okay. is one of the biblical figures who is barren until she miraculously receives a child. Oh, my gosh. Um, Hannah is another of those oh biblical God. figures who not, is like, barren. Isabel, I, I, you know, can't really berate myself for missing, but how did I miss Hannah? I do not know. Hannah, who, like, goes into a fervor and prays so strongly in the Bible that the priest Simeon thinks she's drunk. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's very characteristic of the Hannah in this book um, once she loses her, her child. Right. Um, and husband um and then tom who's thomas oh my who in God. the bible is called the twin <laughs> <laughs> right as well as doubting thomas okay um it's it's yeah all all there right um there there's a, a sarah who's mentioned just in passing in here she's not a big character but a sarah who um has a child who has to go to an orphanage and Sarah is another of those women who is barren until miraculously receiving a child in the Bible as well. Right. Um, so, I mean, Stedman knew what she was doing just with the names right. here. Um, I think there are, there were more that I, I noted, but those are the ones that I, I am especially remembering here. Sure. Um, I mean, those are the big characters, too. Um, and... The rest more or less populate the world that surround those characters. Sure. Um, but um, the 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 idea is that I I, th- I think this is what what is is continuing to draw me back to the book that that keeps me from dismissing it. Okay. Is that what Stedman is really pointing out is, and I brought this up in a previous episode too, the duality of man. Sure. <laughs> and how in in my English class that was deemed too reductive by our English teacher because that was our answer for everything. Right, it's sort of like saying of this book is about man's inhumanity to man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I think what... Um, this is a very intentional examination of that duality um, and that duality in interaction with others. I mean, you have the duality just of Tom and Isabel themselves. They form a unit and they're presented as a very clear, excellent unit together. Their their meet cute is great. Their um, their romantic relationship is wonderful. Their marriage is is perfect until trouble rears its head. Sure, um, and then then it starts to fall apart and then they're trying to get back something that's that's i think um what what motivates isabel 
is right. that looking back, trying to recover that great relationship that they had right. um, by inserting this child in. And Tom is saying, no, we need to move forward. We need to forget about the past and move forward. And that's how we'll fix it. And so we've got the those those two having that duality, but then they're drawn backward toward each other um, in in different ways sure. as well. And then that conflict is put onto others. And just the idea of conflict presents the idea that there are two ways to look at a thing. <laughs> sure. Uh, you can you can always have two faces about a thing. And that's an interesting thing to look at too. Anytime faces are described in the book um, yeah. is is something to, to take note of as well because faces do play an interesting role um, in their description, which some of that is cinematic itself. Uh, right. Just how faces are screwed up in different um, arrangements and and such but um that's that's something that that keeps drawing me back is just the examination of human nature and how to reconcile the two or more selves within the self yeah absolutely there you go sermon over <laughs> <laughs> no i i i like that and i think um if you were and i don't know if you were like attempting to sort of uh, push back at my criticisms of the book for sort of relying on emotion and for not having sort of a point beyond that. I think um, that that like thematic mythological level that you've drawn out here is probably um, the strongest case. Uh, and I wasn't necessarily directly trying to react against that. I was just sure. this is this this is the real positive that I'm finding in the book. Right. Um yeah, and I think, you know, I had a sense that both a sense and I could probably back it up sort of academically, you know, if I if I chose to or needed to, but there was definitely a sense that like my criticisms, well, I think that they're present and relevant um definitely don't describe everything that was going on uh in this story and i think you've you've brought out a lot of like um you know again i don't think like a, a kundera-esque like um hyper intellectual hyper metatextual thing is what stedman was going for any more than she was going for sort of a a jane austen-esque like romantic comedy with a with a tied off happy ending but like um what what sort of uh intellect and and uh deeper thematic resonance is there definitely is there in the mythology and in the the names and that's the other side mm -hmm. of sort of a problem story too right if you're yeah. if you're willing to sort of make your story this inherently unrealistic or anti-realistic um you can sort of run in the other direction and you know give your characters these names with sort of mythological resonances mm -hmm. um so yeah there is there is that as well yeah uh michael was there anything else you wanted to bring up especially doesn't have to be, but especially if it was in praise of this book to counterbalance my uh, panning of it. 
Um, well, I, I, I wanted to, to contradict myself a little bit. Um, <laughs> twist. Um, just like I, I, I dismissed a little bit of the, the um, uh, I, I, I was dismissive of the book's interest in the Christian situation and religion sure. and such. Um, but I'm trying to find it again. There is definitely a reference to, there it is, page 359. Um, this happened a little bit in the Underground Railroad, too, um, towards the end of that book. Mm -hmm. uh, this is talking about um, when Lucy wanders off by herself, and now no one knows where she is. Oh, yes. And um, the the end of the first paragraph, not a full paragraph, right before the break there, it says she yeah. has never seen a snake. Uh, and then the very next paragraph, she pulls out an apple. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Um, I mean, it's it's very clear. And then on the next page, okay, so everyone's looking for They find the evidence of the apple there. Um, at, towards the bottom of the page, after the little bit of a break, they're clutching her drawing, page 360, of Mama and Dada and the yeah. light. The child recalls the story of the wise men finding their way to baby Jesus by a star. She has spotted the light of Janus out to sea. Which, okay, so it's taking some of these, these familiar Christian stories um, but also putting them all into the context of this Janus. So yeah. she's not finding Jesus. She's finding Janus by right. this light. Okay. Um, also, I, I, I want to go double back on this um, names with Michael because I just happened to flip to the page uh, where Grace is baptized. Right. Um, after we read about Lucy being baptized. It's page 182. Um, page 182, Ethan, can you see what Grace's full name is? Uh, Grace Ellen. Do you know what Ellen means? No, I don't actually. Light. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's it's Greek. Oh. <laughs> uh. It's it's from the Greek meaning light, where Lucy is the Latin meaning light. Right. So and. Okay, just to give you some history here. This is something that I didn't notice, I think, the first time through. Um, but, like, the Roman mythology borrows a lot from Greek mythology. It's almost a one-to-one. -one. Yeah. Uh, there's some meme page I'm on on, on Facebook because I'm 11,000 years old. Um, <laughs> that... Oh, it was... It's, it's, a, it's called the Campaign for Historically Accurate Meme. And I can't remember. It's an old like the emperor's new clothes thing where uh, I wish I could. Re yeah, this is bad. This is very bad audio copy. But um, <laughs> basically, it's just where like someone sees sees someone else in some fancy clothes and like the fancy clothes are called Greek mythology, and then the person is like putting on the clothes, and they're called Roman mythology or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that's my I, I attempt to make our podcast relevant, but that failed miserably. Go on. <laughs> You're trying to make our podcast relevant by referencing a Facebook meme page. <laughs> a meme page on Facebook, the most archaic of currently yep. living social media platforms, <laughs> yes. Oh, good. Yeah, so, okay, that's just um, a little addition to the names with Michael there. Yeah. That um, it, it, it's, that's too coincidental for it to be an accident yeah stedman knew what she was doing yeah absolutely um 
so yeah, that's more or less it. it it's it's something where I think Stedman is doing a lot in here mm-hmm. um, that bears a little bit of investigation and close reading um, to a certain extent. Uh, yeah. The, by by and far and away, her intention is this emotional response that she intends to accomplish in all of this, and also to sell uh, her book as a screenplay, and also to sell her book as a screenplay. But uh, I think she does it well. I think she worked hard at it and um, brought out some interesting things. Yeah, uh, some like, interesting observations. I have to say, and... I've, I've never um, countenanced the idea of an author working hard at something as being, like, deserving of anything. Um, <laughs> but that said, sure. Stebbin does do this much less cynically and much more intelligently than, um, especially some of my initial comments, I feel like, would have been led, or would might lead you to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, other than admitting that she was way smarter than me at the end of the last episode, that's probably the most complimentary thing I would say. Other than the one thing that I did want to mention is that, like, despite my accusations that the historical sort of context was just mm. uh, picked for its emotional resonance rather than the other way around, um, she does do a fantastic job in her research and in her historical references very Um, much like i have no beef with her use of actual history no she did a lot of research into it and brings it clearly like maybe a better historian than i am could you know come at her for that but like as an amateur historian who does love the history of this period and um you know, knows something about Australian history. Like I, I have nothing but praise for her use of historical detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did I derail us? Did you have any any other final thoughts you wanted to to raise here? No, that's that's about it that I wanted to really bring out here. Um. I was trying to flip through all of my marginal notes and see if there was anything more I wanted to say, but I think I've covered everything. Sure. There's, yeah. All right. It's, 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 it's going to tear your heart out, I think, (laughs) but that's the point, you know? Yeah. That's, that's just the, the summary of it is, is it's intending to tear your heart out. Yeah. And again, like if, and and this is maybe like uh cheaply precursing our ratings here but like if that is enough for you if a book that just does that for you like if that makes you want to read something this is probably a book for you if you need mm-hmm. your heart being torn out to be in the service of something larger i would say like me this is probably not going to be a book that you ultimately really like Save some of that for the ratings. I I did tell myself to, and then I didn't. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up, Michael? No. Aha, you've fallen into my trap. We are now going to wrap you up. <laughs>
because I said wrap up. Oh, uh, very convincing. Um, <laughs> all right, are we supposed to rate the book now? Yeah, we rate the book now and the pairing now, and then right. Yeah. Okay. So, Michael, how would you rate this book on a three-point scale of buy, borrow, or forget about? I am going to rate this book borrow. Okay. Um, I do not think it necessarily measures up to any sort of great standard of literature. I think it is worth a read, very much worth a read, uh, especially considering some of those um, mythological references and even just some of the history too. It would be interesting to trace some of that and see what else was going on in the world in 1926, sure. uh, which I didn't do like, That'd be a, an interesting side-by-side -side comparison. Just look at the, the years and see what's going on here. Sure. Uh, and the dates itself, you know, just look at, you know, what storms were rising in the sea by Australia. And all oh, that. sure. I anyway, did look up Janus Rock uh, and it is a real, uh, it is a real place. Roughly where. Janus Rock is a real place? Yeah, roughly where Stedman locates it. That's fantastic. I did not do that much research. Um, if this were a good podcast, I would have. Well, I mean, <laughs> this was me Googling it on my phone while you talked about something else, so. Oh, okay, all right. Well, that's awesome, just the fact that it exists. Yeah. And, I mean, that itself, I think, raises it in my appraisal. Sure. That she didn't invent this. Right, right. It, it would be easy to invent a place that fits your idea, but to find a, a place... And right, and you can you can have a whole chicken or egg discussion about like whether know. the idea or the discovery of the place came first. Yep. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, either way, it is. I I will say super neat that that it does exist. Yeah, exactly. So I I, I am going to say borrow it. Um, do do read it. Um, I I would recommend the movie too. Um, I I hesitate to say either or versus sure. both um yeah i mean watch it read it both do what feels right to you if like ethan you read the book and it seems purely emotionally manipulative i'm not trying to just reduce your opinion <laughs> of it ethan um <laughs> uh, then you know you don't need to worry about it anymore if you've borrowed it uh, that's that's fine. Um, or if you think that it would suit a movie better, watch the movie and and check it out. Um, it it is one of those where I think the movie is um, very close to the book, sure, and in a lot of ways roughly equivalent. However, some of the things we pointed out do, do require you to read the book, so borrow it. That's what I say. All right. Um, in spite of what provisional praise i've given and somewhat agreements with michael i've given i am going to just say forget about it um hmm. i just don't feel like the investment of time and effort is ultimately worth it um hmm. i guess my one proviso to that and i have as i think i mentioned i have not watched this movie um I would almost say watch the movie because um, if it's assuming it's as close as Michael said it was and um, so forth, like I would almost say like watch the movie. It will waste less of your time if you hate it. And if you like the movie, probably check out the book for sort of the expanded version. 
Again, this is a very provisional recommendation based on the fact that I have not seen the movie. Um, but I, as someone who has seen the movie, I can see the value in that. I would just say that if I were, if I had not read this book, um, what I would want someone to tell me is watch the movie first. Um, mm. But again, as we've said multiple times, like this is based on my very specific like uh, desires and tastes as far as literature goes. So your mileage, you know, obviously may vary. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Michael, how did your scotch pair with this book, would you say? I am going to have to say on this scotch that it's a total mismatch. Sure. Um, for The Light Between Oceans, I mean, just the word ocean requires something saltier. Yes. Um, it, it needs an Isla, I think. Um, I was thinking even uh, like or, old, old Paltney that we had had a... Yeah, 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 that'd be, that'd be good for it. Might, which might be um, an Isla, but it, it's like put in these casks in like the northernmost point of Scotland and exposed to sea spray or whatever. Right, exactly. You know, you need that sea spray in here. And this is this is way too caramely for that. Um, sure. It's, uh, I, I think the book exposes you to the air more than <laughs> this scotch. Sure would have you be sure uh the scotch i think is more suited for an internal location the and again i'm re- i'm drinking the the glenlivet 14 year right um from the cognac cask selection right um so yeah so i i gotta say total mismatch on that yeah <laughs> i agree with my my uh somewhat different but somewhat similar scotch uh um I agree, total mismatch for mine as well. Uh, What matching we did of scotches does involve us both having a Highland that is aged in a a sort of red wine-derived cask. Um, And mine is is very light and very, like, it's not salty, it's not, like, smoky at all, and I am getting now getting ahead of myself as far as the actual scotch review um, two episodes out from here. But uh yeah it it i agree with what you said it it this book required something much smokier much almost heavier um like some of the mm. like like a lagavulin even almost or um i hesitate to say mm. a lafroy but uh something see or, i almost think it needs Paltney. a lafroy <laughs> yeah but definitely something much more along those lines which this scotch definitely was not um no. So, don't drink Glenmorangie Highland 12-year La Santa while reading this book. If there's nothing else you take away from this, uh, here are two scotches you should not drink while reading this book. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, That said, gentle listener, thank you for listening. Um, We have a new book next time, which is... Um, The Dream of Perpetual Motion by Dexter Palmer. Uh, please, please read along um, and give us your feedback. Uh, you can do that in the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Um, you can uh, 
Tweet us at Room with Scotch on Twitter. Uh, you can tweet me at Bjartlett, B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Michael, where can they tweet you? At M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Um, you can also join the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. Request to join. We will let you in unless you're an old Roman god in disguise. Um <laughs> Also, we will do your homework. You can go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, fill out the form there. Um, we don't promise to do your homework well, but we do condone plagiarism because it's funny, so if you have any kind of English homework, writing homework from current classes, or indeed classes you've taken in the past, anything like that. Or future classes. Or classes that are coming up that you want to get a jump on plagiarizing for um any of that yeah we'll we'll do it um <laughs> if you write down our exact words and turn them in unedited to your english teacher they will be like who are michael and ethan and also you get an f um but we'll laugh no, here's 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 what you do you set up your computer you open up microsoft word you turn on the uh speech to text feature yes. and then you play our podcast on your phone and you just walk away yep and the our podcast writes your paper for you. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, <laughs> yeah, so do that. If you like this podcast, please check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network. Um, there's our backstage drama podcast, Intermission, the podcast Us Play Fiasco. Michael, can you explain that one? Yes. Uh, three to five people play Fiasco um and make a, a movie that's more or less after the tradition of the coen brothers and it's always a terrible time and very funny so but it's a movie yeah. that's just all from your mouths all from our mouths yes very good um shout out to our pitch perfect fans um also pokemon rollout the pokemon tabletop united real play rpg podcast uh which mm-hmm. is also very good and i was a guest on one episode ages ago but other than that it's a good podcast um <laughs> please rate and review us on apple podcasts on stitcher on podcast addict wherever you get your podcasts um that's the best way for people to like learn about us um do there's there are other options but the only one you want is the five star rating right michael like five stars is that? oh yeah okay yeah the rest are the rest are just you know decoys they're tricks five yeah. stars is what you want yep um we don't pay to advertise so that's the best way for people to find out about us i think i just said that um i uh write the script for a webcomic called pin porter girl detective which combines um, sort of old BA fairy tales with uh, sort of film noir detective genre, um, and the star is a 12-year-old girl detective who could kick your butt or my butt or Michael's butt. Um, and it's a it's a fun webcomic that doesn't actually involve any real butts. I just said butts too many times. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, so... Uh, that's us and until next time Mm -hmm. just remember it's our party and we'll cry if alicia vikander makes us
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.